For those of us that are older, we remember the Los Angeles riots. Those riots started on April 29, 1992. After a mostly white jury acquitted four police officers accused in the videotaped brutal beating of a black motorist named Rodney King after he had tried to escape from police. The smaller picture is Mr. King after that beating. Thousands of people in Los Angeles, mostly younger black, Asian, and Latino males, joined in what has been characterized as a race riot or a miniature civil war. It began in the evening after the verdict had been announced, then peaked in intensity throughout the next two days and even continued for some days after that. Continuous television coverage, especially from helicopter news crews, riveted the nation and shocked viewers as parts of Los Angeles went up in flames. Stores were openly looted. Innocent bystanders were beaten and rioters shot at police. The California National Guard troops were deployed to control the situation, and even federal troops were called in to help put an end to the disorder. There were more than 50 actual deaths resulting from those riots, and another 2,000 persons were injured. Estimates of material loss reached more than $1 billion. Some 3,600 fires were set, and 1,100 buildings were destroyed, with fire calls being made once a minute at some points during those riots. It is said that altogether about 10,000 people were arrested, and that does not count the arrests made from smaller but similar incidents of civil unrest in other cities. San Francisco alone arrested 1,400 rioters in its downtown area. The rioting become, had become so intense that on the third day, an emotional Rodney King interrupted television coverage to announce to the public the famous question, that unforgettable question that has been repeated so often since then, and that question was, can we all get along? Can we all just get along? This is a unique slide. We don't, we don't actually see this in nature. This is a millennial period slide. Um, in essence, though that same question was being addressed at the beginning of Philippians chapter 4, because Paul wrote this section in order to encourage reconciliation between two conflicting congregants at ancient Philippi. Notice Philippians 4 verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown. Notice how much Paul loved and missed his Christian brothers at the congregation at Philippi. So stand fast in the Lord. Satan wants nothing more than to create an unstable environment in the church. Because of that, Paul encouraged this congregation at Philippi to stand fast and stand firm against the destabilizing threats from Satan. And to stand fast and strong and firm has continued to be God's instructions for the Christian. Notice 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold their traditions which you were taught. 1 Peter 5, verse 12. 
by Sylvanius, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting, meaning encouraging, and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Instability is a serious problem. The Christian that is unstable in his spiritual commitment is susceptible, more susceptible to disappointment and doubt and discouragement and spiritual ineffectiveness. Unstable people are more susceptible to temptation, to sin, and more apt to be crushed under troubles and tough times. That's the reason Paul tells us to stand firm. Stand firm, stand strong. And that command to stand is translated from a Greek word, steko, spelled S-T-E-K-O, pronounced steko. And that word steko is the main verb used in verses 1 through 9. It is an imperative. This isn't optional. This isn't just a suggestion. This is an injunction, an imperative, and means to remain stationary. It is a command that has a militaristic connection to it, because just as troops on the front lines are commanded to stand their ground and be unmovable in the heat of battle, Christians are commanded to hold fast their positions in the spiritual battle against Satan and not collapse and not retreat under difficult circumstances and times as we are going to discuss in the next verses. Notice verse 2. I implore, implore means beg in a literal sense, I beg you, Odia, and I implore, beg Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord. Starting in this verse, Paul addressed a serious threat to the congregation's stable environment. He identified the problem in specific language and actually cited the names of two different female congregants that were engaged in a personal conflict. Those congregants were Euodia and Sintichi, not common names now. I would never suggest naming a daughter one of those. Uh, it seems that for some unknown reason, these two women were at odds against one another. That is the reason Paul begged them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Employment consultants have said 85% of employee turnover is the result of employee conflict and relational problems. A survey was sent out to 2,000 employers, not employees, employers, asking the respondents to check the files of the last three persons they had dismissed from their jobs at their respective companies, and then give the reasons as to why those individuals were fired. The results indicated that in two out of three cases, the answer was the same. The employees were terminated, those that were, were not able to get along with other people. Those employees did not lose their positions because they lacked technical skills, but because they lacked the ability to relate effectively with other people, and as a result, there was unresolved conflict. In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy said to Snoopy, there are times, Snoopy, when you really bug me. But I must admit, there are also times when I feel like giving you a big hug. Snoopy smiled and said, That's me. I am huggable and buggable. 
The problem is some of us are more buggable than we are huggable. And because of that, there can be conflict. There's arguing, infighting, power struggles, silent standoffs, and personalities clashing. The, the women at Philippi that had a personal disagreement between them were Euodia and Sintichi. These two women are mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. And the specifics of this particular disagreement between them, those specifics aren't mentioned either. So we don't know. But there are three things we do know about them. Three things we know about these women and this situation. First is, these women were church members and not troublemakers from outside the congregation. These women weren't troublemakers. So this was an in-house situation. In a free and open society, such as we have had, and I use that in the past tense because it seems since the onset of this COVID virus that we are losing freedoms and civil liberties at an exponential speed. So we aren't as free and we aren't as open as we once were and I doubt we ever will be again. But in a free and open society, unlike communist China, unlike North Korea for example, in those areas and regions, um, Persecution exists, severe persecution. Here, though, in our free and open society, Satan does ex doesn't use external persecution so much against the church. Instead, Satan uses internal dissension. Internal dissension. Satan focuses attention and focuses his energies on causing conflict and dissension and thus creating division. If he can divide the church, then we are ineffective. We've lost our sense of stability. So this is an internal problem. Second, this disagreement between them was not about a doctrinal issue. This wasn't about a doctrinal issue. It's not theological in nature, per se. If it had been a doctrinal question or a doctrinal dispute, then Paul would have resolved that issue as he always did. He would have sided with the person that held the correct doctrinal position and he would have admonished the one that was mistaken about that matter. Paul always corrected erroneous false teaching and he doesn't so that couldn't have been the problem between them. Three, these were prominent women in the congregation who acted as assistants to Paul. Prominent women that assisted Paul. These females weren't fringe people that just sat on the sidelines. These women were active, committed, contributing participants. So this is serious. Paul urged uh, Euodia and Sintichi to resolve this interpersonal conflict and be reconciled to one another because he understood that discord and divisiveness can create instability and that can be fatal to a congregation. Notice he used the term implore. Implore to indicate that he was in a pleading mode as he addressed these women. And that meant he literally begged them, begged them to resolve this issue. In essence, he predated that, that question from Rodney King and said, ladies, can we, can we just all get along here? Then please notice something else interesting. The verse reads, I implore you, Odia, 
and I implore Sintichi. He repeated this phrase, I implore, or I beg, and he said it to each one of them. And in doing that, he gave us the impression that there was some fault on both sides. It wasn't 100% to nothing. Each contributed to this conflict. The Latin Vulgate is an older edition of Scripture. It is in the Latin language. The first book ever published on the printing press, Gutenberg's Press in the 15th century, the first book was a copy of the Bible. And it happened to be that translation, the Latin Vulgate, the first document ever printed. And that particular translation uses different verbs in this statement, which also seem to emphasize a mutual wrongdoing. So what that means is that most of the time, most all the time, conflict is a two-way street. If there is a personal grievance between two people, or if there is a grievance between two people groups, there is most certain a measure of fault on both sides. Each of us contribute to that problem and conflict. Both parties are at fault to some degree. Sometimes a personal dispute is so long-standing and so serious that it calls for a third party to act as an objective and unprejudiced arbitrator to mediate between them. Mediate meaning to come between those that are in conflict to help bring about a resolution and bring about a reconciliation between them. And that is what Paul is attempting to do in verse 3. Notice, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women. These women, Euodia and Sintichi, who are in conflict, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This phrase, these women, was a reference to these parties that are in conflict, Euodia and Sintichi. And notice, these women had been an asset to Paul because these women labored with him in the gospel. Paul specifically addressed these instructions, though, to someone called his true companion. Who is this person? We don't know. It is not said who this true companion was, which is why people have tried to guess his identification. Some have suggested it might have been Barnabas. Barnabas had been his associate. Some have suggested it was someone named Son Zugos. Son Zugos was a Greek transliteration or respelling of the word companion. Someone else said it was a husband of to one of these two women, which is doubtful. We just don't know. We don't know who this person was. If it was important that we know the identification of this person, God would have told us. But since he didn't, then it doesn't matter. But what does matter is that Paul appealed to this anonymous person. Paul appealed to this true companion and asked him to intervene in this dispute and to use his influence to bring about a solution to this conflict. Because we are human, fallen humans, some conflict among us is inevitable. Let me mention in the remainder of this sermon five practical suggestions on how to better get along. How to better get along. To either avoid conflict, or if there is existing conflict, how to resolve that conflict. Suggestion one is to incorporate the 101, 101% principle. 
Incorporate the 101% principle. Now listen carefully. The 101% principle means exercising 100% effort focused on the one thing that we have in common with the person that has a conflict with us. The 101% principle means exercising 100% all of our energies and effort focused on the one thing that we have in common with this person that we're either in conflict with or potential conflict. If I meet someone that might be considered a difficult person, and all people are difficult at times, I'm sure I have been difficult often. Not intentional, but it happens. Um, But if I meet someone that I've heard, this is a difficult person, then I start asking them probing questions. Why do I do that? I want to find the one thing that we might have in common. The one thing. Once I find that one thing that we do agree on, or even that one thing we both feel passionate about, then I give that one thing that we share together in common, I give it 100% of my attention. I focus on that one thing. I don't focus on the things we disagree about. I focus on the one thing that we do agree on. That 1% of agreement is going to act as the connection that pulls us together. It becomes the tie that binds us together in a relationship. This principle has been adapted. This is a loose adaptation. This principle, though, has been adapted from the parable of the lost sheep found in Luke chapter 15. Remember that shepherd in that parable had 100 sheep and he lost one of them. So 1% of his total number of sheep was now missing. One of them wandered off. This shepherd then ignored the 99% of his sheep that were fine and were secure and safe and he went after that one sheep and he went after that sheep until he found it. He essentially gave 100% of his attention to finding the one sheep that was lost. That's the 101% principle. Some of us might recognize the name S. Truett Cathy. Mr. Cathy died in 2014 at age 93. He was a committed, committed Christian. He taught a Sunday school class at the First Baptist Church George Jonesboro, Georgia, for 50 years. 50 years he taught Sunday school, and all the time he was also the founder and president of an increasingly popular food chain called Louder Chick fil A. Chick fil A. I, I met someone after first service, I've never been to Chick fil A. I go, Are you serious? This is almost sin of omission. How can you do this? This is just wrong. We, we now have a Chick-fil-A in Carson City. Hallelujah. And uh, he was also, Mr. Kathy was also what we would call a Sunday Sabbatarian or a first day Sabbatarian. First day, Sunday is the first day of the week. So Sunday or first day Sabbatarian. And that's the reason that all Chick-fil-A stores are closed on Sunday. He feels, now there's no biblical mandate for him to do that, but he feels that Sunday should be 
a facsimile of a Sabbath where we set aside for families and especially to worship on Sundays. I'm good with that. I respect that until I have a craving for a sandwich and I'm ticked. Anyway, but that's fine. Um, he once shared his adaptation, adaptation of this 101% principle. Listen to this. This is extremely practical. He said, in the early stages of Chick-fil-A, we were anxious to advertise our product. One day an idea dawned on me. There were competing newspapers in town, and the editors of these papers wouldn't walk on the same side of the street with each other. There was serious conflict between them. Since everyone knew about their feud, I invited those two editors to meet with me. I asked each one individually if he would come down to one of our restaurants to discuss placing a full-page ad in their paper. Now, neither one of them knew that I had called the other one. Once they got there and found themselves face-to-face -face with each other, they knew something was up. I said, gentlemen, if you can do one thing for me, then I will give both of you a full-page advertisement. All I want you to do is sit over there in that booth and eat a chicken sandwich together. When you get through, stand up, shake hands, we'll take a picture of that moment, and then we will add a caption beneath that picture reading, we disagree on many things, but there's one thing we both agree on. This is the best chicken sandwich we've ever eaten. Both of them agreed to do that. That's the 101% principle. He utilized that, and we should use that principle, in minimizing interpersonal conflict. Suggestion two is to love people more than our opinions. Love people more than our opinions. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound notice, abound in love to one another and to all, just as we, Paul and his associates, do to you. In the original language, this word abound meant to increase. It meant to superabound. It meant to increase and then to exist in excess. So to abound in love toward one another means to increase in love toward one another, to where we possess love toward one another in excess. Not in moderation, in excess. We are to possess excessive love toward one another. Don't be a Charlie Brown who said, I love mankind, it's just people I can't stand. The point is, we are to love people, and we are to love people more than we love our opinions. Love people more than opinions unless... There are some exceptions, unless those opinions concern non-negotiable teachings essential to someone's salvation. We don't fudge on those. Love people more than opinions unless those opinions are certain moral convictions that we hold to no matter what. An example of that, I have a conviction that marriage is between a man and a woman. That is traditional marriage. That is biblical marriage. That is a conviction I hold to. It is not a preferential 
opinion. It is a conviction. If I were the only person left alive on earth that held to that position, it wouldn't matter. Put a gun to my head. I believe marriage is between a man and a woman and no other combination is acceptable to God nor acceptable to me. I won't budge on that. If I lose all friends, if I lose position, power, money, whatever, I don't care. So there are exceptions. However, most people, they're not hung up on moral convictions or theological integrity or doctrinal purity. No, none of those issues. More, more people are opinionated about stuff that doesn't matter that much. Stuff that is non-essential. Stuff that is more personal preference. And some people can fixate on those opinions and not on people. Listen to me. A person who loves his preferential opinions more than his friends will end up defending his opinions and destroying his friendships. One more time. And this is relevant because most all of us have strong opinions. Some of us are more opinionated than others. I've been told I'm opinionated. I don't know where that idea came from, but I've been told that. <laughs> and, and so this is relevant. A person who loves his preferential opinions more than his friends will end up defending his opinions to the death and destroying his friendships. People who are not effective in personal relationships usually have a higher regard for their opinions than they do for people. And that is sad. One extreme example of this suggestion, love people more than opinions, would be the strange, strange marriage of Mary Madeline to James Carville. Now some of you, I can sense you are already aware of this. Others, this is something you're not aware of. Let me set this up. Mary Matlin is a political consultant. She served under President Reagan. She was campaign director for President Bush Sr. She was assistant to President George Bush and counselor to Vice President Dick Cheney. She also served as chief of staff at the Republican National Committee. Mary Madeline is an outspoken conservative Republican who idolized Rush Limbaugh. So that's one part of this equation. Mary Madeline. Now get this. She is married to one James Carville. James Carville is one of the most successful political strategists of all time. He's probably best known for as the chief campaign strategist for the Clinton-Gore campaign in 92, and he is an extremely liberal and sometimes obnoxious Democrat. He has made such statements as, listen to this, Republicans want smaller government for the same reason crooks want fewer cops. It's easier to get away with murder. Now that's insulting, that's unfair, that's inaccurate, that's slanderous, but that's James Carville. He says stupid stuff all the time. Both of them have had remarkable careers in politics, although representing polar opposite political perspectives. But this oddest of all odd couples have been married since 1993, and no one has died. <laughs> Mary Madeline and James Carville are still married because both have chosen to love one another more than their personal political opinions. It probably helps the Carvilles have a rule that they do not discuss politics at home. It would be self-destructive if they even attempted that. Can you imagine a meal seriously together and the, the subject is politics at that house? No way. Some, it's just terrible. 
miraculous, but that's an example of how relationships can work. Now, I'm not suggesting you find a mate that represents the opposite of you politically. I don't think that's probably going to work. Suggestion three. Suggestion three is to give people the benefit of the doubt. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Some time ago, I did, I believe in 2018, I did a 14-part series on agape love. Agape love meaning divine love, maximum love. I did a 14-part series from 1 Corinthians 13. From my perspective, I felt it was one of the better things I have done to date. 1 Corinthians 13 mentions 16 different qualities for love. According to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, characteristic 13 in that listing reads that love believes all things. Don't misunderstand that. Love believes all things doesn't mean love is naive doesn't mean love is gullible. This phrase, love believes all things, means love believes the best in someone. Love believes the best in someone until there is evidence and documentation to indicate otherwise. Instead of being suspicious of someone, as sometimes we are, instead of being eager to pronounce someone guilty, judge them and pronounce them guilty, love believes the best in someone. Love doesn't go through life cynical and suspicious suspecting everyone of doing something they shouldn't have done. Love doesn't jump to premature conclusions. Just like the two women sitting at the breakfast table, and one of them noticed through the window the neighbor's car pulling into the driveway. And she commented after seeing this car, I cannot believe how dirty my neighbor's car is. It's just filthy. Her friend got up from the table, walked over to the window to see for herself, and said, No, your neighbor's car is fine. Girl, that dirty mess is on your window. <laughs> Love doesn't jump to premature conclusions. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. I have found, I have been in the people business a long time. I have found that we tend to rationalize for ourselves for our mess-ups, mistakes, sins, flaws, failures. That means we use all the exception clauses for ourselves. If we mess up, we give ourselves a break, but not with someone else. We rule ourselves with our hearts, but we rule others with our heads. We have mercy for ourselves, but we have law and judgment for someone else. People, we need to lighten up. And give people the benefit of the doubt. Do you know why I don't use Twitter? Because <laughs> I want to stay employed? <laughs> no, because people respond to tweets without giving someone the benefit of the doubt. Suggestion four. Don't overreact to personal conflict. Don't overreact to personal conflict. One classic case of someone who overreacted was Simon Peter in his defense against the mob that had come to arrest Jesus at night. There was probably more than 600 men uh, fully armed in torches and lights and that came to arrest Jesus. And uh, sensing this, seeing this, Simon Peter was upset, wanted to defend the Messiah, 
John 18 verse 10 states that Simon Peter had a sword. He pulled out that sword and swung it and sliced off the right ear of a man named Malchus. Now Peter wasn't aiming for his ear. Peter aimed for his head. Either Peter just missed or Malchus ducked. We aren't sure, but he did slice off the ear. Jesus reached down into the dirt, picked up that amputated ear, reattached it to the head of Malchus, and then told Simon Peter to put up his sword. Simon Peter overreacted at that moment, which complicated matters, and it always does. Consider this analogy. If there's a fly on the wall, then all we need to solve the problem of the fly is a fly swatter, not a shotgun. It's that simple. Speaking of insects, I read that Steve Tran from Westminster, California, wanted to rid his apartment of cockroaches. So he strategically placed 25, 25 activated bug bombs throughout his small residence. But when the spray from the units reached the pilot light of his stove, it ignited, blasting the screen door across the street, breaking all of his windows and setting all his furniture on fire. Steve said, I wanted to kill all the cockroaches. I thought if I used a lot more repellent, it would be more effective and would last longer. But according to the label, just two canisters, not 25, would have solved trans roach problem. That blast cost $10,000 of damages to that apartment. And to add insult to injury, according to Mr. Tran, on Sunday he saw more roaches walking around. <laughs> That's a classic example of overreaction. For those that aren't familiar with the temperament profile DISC, um, I am a dominant high D temperament type. I didn't ask to be. That's how God wired me. Um, I accept that. It has strengths. It has definite weaknesses, as do all the temperament types. Uh, if high D is unfamiliar, choleric is another name for that temperament. So as someone that possesses that temperament, I am more susceptible to overreaction. As I get older, I'm slower, so I'm not as susceptible. But, but I'm experienced at overreaction. I probably have a PhD in overreaction. I have sometimes used a nuclear warhead on a problem that a BB gun would have been adequate. That's just what I have done. Don't do that. Consider this analogy. In a figurative sense, a conflict is the same as a fire. Conflicts are fires. If that is the case, then each of us are given two five-gallon cans. Two five-gallon cans. One can contains water. And water, if it is applied correctly, helps to extinguish a fire. But the second can is full of gasoline. And a gasoline, if it is applied to a fire, essentially adds fuel to that fire and intensifies that fire. The question is, if we are facing a conflict, which can do we pour onto the fire? Which can do we use? If we react to that problem and that conflict as we should, then we are pouring water onto the fire and it will extinguish the fire. If though we overreact to the problem, we are in essence pouring gasoline onto the fire, and the fire just intensifies and spreads, and that complicates the conflict, so that in the end the problem is worse than it was at the beginning. Christian, react. Yes, react. But don't overreact. 
Someone said this, and I think there is wisdom in this. If we are facing conflict, then play it down and pray it up. Play it down and pray it up. Suggestion five. Suggestion five is don't retaliate if we have been hurt through conflict. Don't retaliate. Invariably, people get hurt through conflict. I have seen it happen so often. I have been the recipient of hurt. It might be a bruised ego and hurt feelings. It might be a damaged reputation. The trauma of it all might have caused some emotional scarring. There's no question conflict hurts. If we are an unfortunate and hurting victim from conflict, then we are going to be tempted to get revenge, to fight back at the one that we feel is responsible for that hurt and conflict. Don't do it. The reason is retaliation just perpetuates the problem. Retaliation just perpetuates the conflict. Think through this. If each person in a conflict feels the other person is primarily responsible for that conflict, and if each person is hurting from that conflict, and if each person is intent on getting even and getting revenge and fighting back, then people understand that conflict will never, never end. It is perpetual. Don't do it. Romans 12, starting at verse 17. I don't have time to dissect this. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, please notice, if it is possible, and sometimes, this is rare, sometimes in some isolated cases, it is not possible. If it is possible, though, as much as depends on you. Remember, we are only responsible for ourselves. We aren't responsible for the person that is the opposite side of the conflict. That person is responsible for themselves. We are only responsible for ourselves and how we react to that person. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably. Live peaceably with all men. Paraphrase this, be a lover, not a fighter. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, before we read this, understand, these instructions are addressed to individuals, not nations per se. So these statements are not necessarily appropriate and applicable to the United States and its relations to North Korea and Iran and communist China and or other evil regimes. This is addressed to persons, not nations. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give, me, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. I wish I had more time to address that last phrase. Uh, some people read that and they go, oh great, a barbecue of coals on his head, that's great. No, that's revenge, that's not what it means. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I heard of an entrepreneurial woman, an ambitious businesswoman, who started a thriving business called Enough is Enough. Name of the business on the sign, Enough is Enough. Her clientele are those persons who want to get back at someone 
Her customers are those persons that want revenge. These people have been offended, these people have been hurt, and want revenge. For instance, for a modest fee, you can purchase from this business what is called a get-back gift. That get-back gift might consist of a dead, smelly, 10-pound codfish and some red roses all wrapped together in black crepe paper. And for an additional fee, you can have it hand-delivered to that special person you want to get back at. People understand from this Romans 12 passage, this woman's business is illegitimate completely illegitimate because we are not to be in the business of getting back at someone. That is jo God's job. In fact, we are to overcome evil with good. For those of us who sit here in some pious, sanctimonious smugness and feel as though all of this is beneath us, we would never stoop to that. Let me remind each one of us, I'm including myself, that although retaliation sometimes might be some external act such as hateful alienation such as using ugly words about someone or against someone or such as using violence as in road rage retaliation sometimes might be an external act more often than not though retaliation is probably just an internal attitude Retaliation most often is an eternal attitude. Let me explain that. Because of conflict, we might have been hurt. And since hurt people do hurt people, we fight back against the one who hurt us. Not externally, most often, but we fight back from the inside. It's called bitterness. Bitterness on the outside, we might seem to be cordial and polite to this person that hurt us, but on the inside, we are punching this guy's lights out. We are so upset. That is basic bitterness. And bitterness is two things. One, bitterness is a sin. Sin, short and simple. Bitterness is a sin. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Let all bitterness be put away from you. All bitterness. God cannot, cannot bless bitterness. Second, Bitterness is just not smart. Bitterness isn't smart. I read that Tokyo police arrested a man that admitted being upset at being denied admission into graduate school some 14 years earlier. Imagine, after 14 years he still has a bitterness problem. Since that time he had averaged 10 irate phone calls a night between the hours of 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. He had called this man, he accused of cheating him out of graduate school. I'm assuming most often the man didn't answer those calls and he left messages. But those calls were to the former professor whom he blames for keeping him out of graduate school. Of course, I would just try another graduate school. I don't get it, but these 14 years of revenge phone calls totaled up, get this, totaled up to more than 50,000 calls. So how smart was that? What a waste of someone's time and energies. I read a bumper sticker that said, Love your enemies. It confuses them. It does. Most people can't handle that. Bitterness is not smart. 
also not smart because it doesn't hurt the one for whom it is intended. It hurts the one who is actually bitter. Bitterness is counterproductive, people. It's nonsensical. Bitterness is like the aborigine who tried to throw away his old boomerang. He tried to throw it away, came back and knocked him unconscious. Couldn't do it. That's what happens. Even though bitterness is aimed at someone else, it redirects itself at us. No one is more miserable than a bitter person. Bitterness is an internal form of revenge and retaliation which just compounds the conflict. So God said, don't do it. In the 1800s, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon from London, London Metropolitan Tabernacle, the most often quoted preacher of all time, brilliant man. Charles Spurgeon had a minister friend named Dr. Newman Hall. Dr. Hall wrote a book entitled, Come to Jesus. That was the name of the book, Come to Jesus. It became a bestseller. It is said, though, that another minister from the London area, I'm assuming was envious of his success, published an article in which he totally ridiculed Dr. Hall. Pastor Hall read that article, was upset, but he did nothing for a time, set it aside. But then the article started gaining in popularity. More and more people read the article and formed a different opinion about Pastor Hall than they had before. So he sat down one afternoon and wrote a scathing letter of protest. His response was full of retaliatory statements that outdid anything in the article that had attacked him. Just before he mailed the letter, though, he thought he should probably bring it to his friend, Charles Spurgeon, to read. He just wanted his opinion of that letter. So he stood there as Mr. Spurgeon read the letter carefully, and then Spurgeon handed it back and said, uh, that was excellent. Uh, you expressed how you feel. That was excellent. But then he added, it lacks just one thing. After a pause, Spurgeon continued, underneath your signature at the bottom of this letter, you ought to write the words, author of come to Jesus. The two men just stood there and looked at each other for what seemed to be minutes. And then Dr. Hall tore that letter to shreds. No matter how much we might have been hurt from conflict, and we probably all have, don't, don't retaliate. Play it down and pray it up. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this day and uh, for this time. I mean, I talked about somebody that's relevant to everyone in this room. There is no one in this room who has survived <laughs> never experiencing conflict. We all have. Sometimes we have probably been the instigator of that conflict. Probably more often than not, though, we have been the recipient of that. It doesn't matter. God, we ought to do what we can to avoid conflict without compromising conviction and sound doctrine that is essential to the Christian faith. We ought to avoid conflict if at all possible. Try to live peaceably with all men. But God, if there is conflict, help us to react to that conflict in a biblical manner. Help us to do the things that we have just suggested. Because this is real. This happens. This is reality. Father, I just pray that you will 
bless everyone here in this room. I don't know every heart. If there is anyone here who doesn't have Christ, I pray that they will see me after this service. I don't know of a better time to receive Christ than now, and there might not be another time. If there's anyone in this room who is searching, they have questions about the faith. They don't know about their own status. They don't know if they're forgiven or not. They don't know if heaven is a sure thing for them or not. I pray they'll come to me after this service. We can settle that matter today. God, thank you for your word and how it impacts our lives and how so practical it is. And I thank you and praise you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen.